it, it's it's the emotional side of it that says, okay, am I am I am I ready to let go? The the, the other point to make here is that it's incredibly dangerous if you don't, because ultimately a founder can be, you know, the, the the superstar of a business at one point in time, solving problems left, right, and center, has that singular vision. Could be months or a year later, but suddenly near the bottleneck that prevents that business growing and uh, and actually achieving the goals that that are, are, are hugely important. Hello, and welcome to the Finterview podcast. I'm Amar Kotak, Head of Partnerships at Integrated Finance, and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, we have Aaron Carpenter from Transact Payments Limited, a BIN sponsor and principal member of both Mastercard and Visa, who supports fintechs and companies looking to embed financial products into their existing offering through the launch of a branded card program. Hey, Aaron, great to meet you. Thanks for joining the show today. My absolute pleasure, mate. It would be really good to start with a little bit about your experience, your role at, at TPL or Transact Payments, um, and kind of how you got there. Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess you could say about a little bit of an unusual route to, to, to my current role. I, I, I started my career off quite a while ago now, uh, actually as a, a solicitor in private practice, focusing primarily on commercial and, and corporate work. From there, I uh, moved in-house as a head of legal for a financial services company that was web and fintech based out of the UK, um, which is, was Go Bay. Had a really, really great experience there over a number of years sort of helping to sort of develop certain structures and impose governance and, and so on. Really exciting business at the time. It was just as deep price comparison sites had really started to take hold and had really had a, a big impact on how the general insurance sector was operating as well. And I think that remains the case to, today. So really sort of, I, I would say, piqued my interest in, in being closer to the business rather than being on the purely legal or, or advisory side. But as, you know, came to that position, came to a natural conclusion, you know, I'd achieved what I, I wanted to do with And above all else, I'd never actually worked outside of Wales. So it was very hard, itchy feet, you could say. The weather didn't help. Uh, <laughs> I remember many a, a day staring out of the window in August as uh, torrential rain and just decided there had to be a little bit more to life than this. Started looking at all the usual expat jurisdictions, Dubai and, and so on. And and uh, I had a quite a almost random introduction to to a foot firm here in Gibraltar uh, that was looking for a sort of a fintech and online gambling focused lawyer. Obviously in a fintech experience, but not any online gambling experience. But I met the uh, the senior partner and founder of the firm who Gave me an absolutely fantastic sales pitch uh, on on both the firm and Gibraltar, uh, which I didn't know too much about uh, prior to that time. But I got on the plane, met the firm, met the team, walked up the rocks on the monkeys, did 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 all the things that you you ordinarily do when you first arrive in Gibraltar, and decided to to give it a whirl. And it was from there really that my I guess my career started to touch the payment space. So, in an advisory capacity, started advising one or two of the local electronic money issuers, uh, and over time sort of slowly developed relationships and, and gained an appreciation from the sector that really sort of emphasized to me where I wanted to move in-house. From there, uh, I accepted a job at uh, an EMI, so an electronic money institution in Gibraltar as the chief legal and, and risk officer. It was Jonathan for Wavecrest, which at the time was very, very active in the sort of crypto-related electronic money space was doing very well in a number of ways, but unfortunately 
hit some issues not long after I joined, which was not the perfect way. I didn't feel like the perfect way at the time to <laughs> to become involved in electronic money. But I think the experience I gained there through, you know, walking, helping to walk them through in that period where they were dealing with some, you know, some challenging regulatory matters. It really, I mean, the way probably communists to, as they say, sort of almost being blooded in a, in, in a rugby match, getting that first uh, kind of cold face experience that I think mean, has, has undoubtedly stood me well in, in my career to date. Uh, and from there is when I actually joined Transact Payments, uh, a bit of a leap from Chief Legal and Risk Officer to a COO role, which was interesting, definitely a learning experience. And I joined Transact Payments at, a, I think, a fairly pivotal time um, in, in our history. They had approximately a year before just been acquired by a new set of owners, which had given the business uh, a new lease of life. They'd started to do very well uh, on a sales and business development level. There was a real push to continue to develop the wider business to a point or, or to mature what the, the wider business uh, to a point where it could accommodate the, the volumes and, and the growth that they were, they were now seeing. Uh, of course, there was, at that point in time, uh, a challenge on the horizon, which was Brexit. You know, regardless of your political views, um, for us in Gibraltar, uh, Brexit was not seen as a, as a positive step forward. And, you know, as, it, as, as we got closer and closer to, to the cliff edge of it, but it presented to us, I think we, uh, it became more and more or increasingly clear that the, it was very little likelihood of there being any deal that would have allowed us to continue to service customers who were, were located in the European Union. Uh, the business had, had recognized that risk fairly early on, conducted an assessment of the various jurisdictions in, in Europe and settled on Malta as the jurisdiction uh, in which it was going to seek its second license. And although I joined the business as a COO in Gibraltar, because of my advisory background, I was very active in, in that license application. And it came to a point late 2018, early 2019, when we made a decision, it was a good idea for me to actually change roles uh, and take on the chief executive officer role in Malta. Initially, really, just with the intention of steering us from the licensing proce- process, getting us licensed in time for the, the, the fast approaching cliff edge, and you know, hopefully I'm helping to contribute toward a, a period of stability for the business and, and, and for our customers. Ended up staying a little bit longer than that, <laughs> spending a few years in Malta as as CEO of the, the Malta operations, built a great team, almost all of which are still there today, although the team is, is, has, grown, has grown further since I left and under, my, uh, under the new CEO's guidance, uh, Sergio, who's, who's doing a fantastic job there. And uh, yeah, that's when I took the decision to come back to, to Gibraltar and have taken on the, the CEO role in transit payments. So yeah, from private practice to insurance, to gambling, to payments, to, uh, to, to TPL, I guess. Yeah, and then it sounds like you like to challenge yourself and you know push yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah, I, th- I believe so. I bored. I'm not very good at being bored, and I think that it comes down to the fact that I'm if I'm not challenged, I'm inherently a touch lazy. <laughs> so uh, if I if I don't have a reason, uh, as I put it, I, I, I need the fear. I, I need a I, I need a deadline or I need challenge to get me motivated. Without that, I I'm you know. Idle hands, I guess, is, 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 a, is, a, is a phrase uh, I, I'd use. And I think that, yeah, being in a, a company that's in that growth phase where, you know, you are encountering challenges all the time, you're 
you know, you're dealing with the upsides, which is new business and additional revenue. Um, but you're also ensuring that you are growing the, the kind of the, the foundations of the business and maturing them alongside the revenue growth to keep everybody safe and, and to keep, you know, keep developing their share of the share of the value. But yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm, I'm probably not suited to being in kind of a larger corporate structure where my role is possibly more defined um, or where it's more a case of maintaining BAE. It definitely suits me more um, being in an environment that is more kind of subject to change and environmental challenges that can cause you to have to um, pivot more, more, more frequently than you might to in a, in a larger, uh, more, more mature institution. And I guess with your legal background, um, being kind of in the detail on the regulatory challenges and being able to pivot is quite an important skill set for you and kind of TPL and the kind of industry you operate in. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting point, actually, because I think that when I first joined Transact Payments, I spent a lot of time utilizing sort of that knowledge where I developed and the experience that I had. As time's moved on, I've still got the the, the understanding of, of obviously the regular environment in which we uh, we operate. And and I believe that helps me quite regularly in, in you know identifying problems with potential customers contracts and you know what we can do, what we can't do, you know, solution driven um service the solution to the service that we, we try to provide. But I think there's also a slight danger to it as well, which is as you step away from it a little bit, because you're, you know, you're covering a, a broader, a broader space. Uh, I think it's important to remember you, you do need that special, you do need a specialist still there to advise you. And, you know, I, otherwise you can get caught out, I, I guess is the, the best way of putting it. I, you know, our, our legal team, I'm sure I'm not the easiest person to work for. If you're one of our, you <laughs> if you're one of our in-house counsels, um, because I still enjoy the legal side of it, and I really enjoy the problem solving. I, I'm also more aware today than I would have been maybe 12 months ago that you can't be a specialist and a journalist at the same time. I mean, you need to you, you need to still leverage the experience you've got in in the either in your organisation or with external firms, whoever you're using, and, and to, to leverage the you know the experience and, and the knowledge of those guys who are just more current than you are. Because you know payments is a it's an interesting landscape. On one, in one sense, you can look at the legislation and think there's not been a huge amount of change. But actually, when you sort of look at it a little more deeply, there is, you know, the, the interpretation of regulation changes over time. The position of various regulators can, of course, evolve. I, and I think that it's really important that someone who is really close to that and focused on it is, is there to, I guess, keep me in line and make sure that, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't overlook an important development, which could yeah, ultimately not be good for us or our customers. No, that makes sense. That's also an interesting point you touched upon that, you know, we've spoken to other founders where, um, they're doers, right? There are a lot of entrepreneurs, they tend to be doers. They like to get their hands dirty and as they kind of grow their business and scale, taking that step back and maybe away from the detail and relying on your team to kind of manage that area and like to be the specialist let's say is is a challenge for for some people and i guess it sounds like it's been a challenge personally for you and how have you been able to manage that what have you been telling yourself on to allow you to trust your team and be those specialists and you having to take that step back from maybe being that specialist as well it's a really good question and it's actually you know, something i i spend quite a lot of time so 
inwardly focusing on because for, you know, I'm, I'm very quick to be vocal when I see other people not doing this. <laughs> and sometimes we're all a little bit less adept at witnessing it when it's our own behavior. <laughs> uh, so the, what, what's worked for me, particularly if I, if I look to need, let's say, in a regulatory licensing and, and legal side of the business is, is very much ensure that I'm surrounding myself with, with people who are legitimate experts um, because that's the best way to remind yourself that I might not be you anymore. But I think it's a really important principle, um, sort of more broadly than me, that we are, I think we're a business that's in the maturity phase. We're still growing, but you know, we, we recently underwent a reorganization of all the reporting lines in the business that we felt was incredibly important to address the, the exact issue that you, that you referenced in there. We'd grown from being a fairly small business um, with people wearing just a lot of hats which I which isn't, don't think is uncommon um, in, in developing payments companies or, or any company for that matter. And you know, we, had, we, we came to the realization that we had to address that and really make sure that that wasn't the case going forward so that each team um, was able to focus exclusively on what they need to be focusing on. Whilst at all the, whilst at all times ensuring that their managers had an understanding of really the, the end goal for all of us to ensure the business had that congruence to operate effectively. I think without that, it's, it can be a bit of a nightmare <laughs> ensuring that decisions are joined up. And I think that it also sort of helps prevent the danger of kind of short-term problem solving that can, all, could, can often happen when maybe you've got a founder or, or a number of early stage employees um, who are too close to too many things. So yeah, we've, we've really worked hard as a, as a group to, to break any remaining kind of inertia toward that kind of behavior. And, you know, we found it's worked really well. And the data really supports it. We've opened sort of twice as many pro projects this year as we ever have before with project teams that have not grown to a massive extent. And yet we are closing those projects more efficiently than we have had before as well. And I, and I do think that whilst that's only one part of the business, that's because what we've, what we've done is we've sat down, we've looked at each individual business unit and made it really very clear exactly what their role was, exactly when the mandate begins and when the mandate starts, uh, and what the you know, what the criteria is for prioritizing between those different business units. When occasionally and uh, they, they don't align in the way that you, you'd like them to, it's been a really interesting exercise, challenging, challenging at times, but I think it was absolutely essential. I think if we hadn't have done that 12, 18 months ago, I think we'd be struggling now in, in terms of managing the workload that we have. But rather than that, we have a structure that we feel can really be maintained now and, and added to at the, kind of the at the entry level roles in our, in our business to continue to allow us to scale up. Don't get me wrong; if we if we double our growth again, I'm sure it'll break, and we'll need to, we'll need to find something else. But um, I'm sure it'll, uh, it'll it'll still still align to some of the same principles as we've as we brought into the business in the most recent change. I might ask you that question again because rather than talking about the business, I want you to talk about you personally. As the founder, right? I believe the question was, you know, you, you touched upon an important part there of, you know, you're a doer. And when you're a doer and then you become a founder or the, you become the CEO of the company and you grow your company, you need to take that step back and being able to trust your team. And from a personal perspective, it sounds like you, you find that challenging because you're a doer and, and lots of founders and doers and leaders find that challenging. From your personal viewpoint, how have you? been able to kind of take that step back and you know what's your process you've gone through 
to kind of trust your team that a little bit more. It's uh, just just trying to ask for a moment. So I think it's a, it's a really good question, and, and it's definitely something that I I still occasionally struggle with. I feel that you know when you particularly look, I, I didn't found TPL, but we work with a lot of um, fintechs that do have founder leaders, and you know having been even in similar position in other roles where I was the MD of, of the law firm I mentioned that was early stage. There's identifying that point in time where it's not only right but essential to extricate yourself from many of the day-to-day decisions, I think is one of the more difficult decisions any of us have to make. And that's because ultimately we all kind of think we're right most of the time. <laughs> and at uh, sometimes. You know, there's an element of sometimes it's an element of ego. Sometimes it's an element of you know, not fully appreciating that there are alternate ways of doing things. And, and sometimes it's important to bring in a different viewpoint in order you, in order your business to grow and, and, and evolve in the way it needs to. And for me, I think that it it's a process. I mean, I identified it was necessary for me not to be involved in many of those day to day decisions earlier than my behavior actually kind of accommodated that belief. And I think that the the means by which I, I managed to actually embrace what, what I knew to, knew to be the correct course, course of action was probably influenced by a range of different factors. I think that the first, you know, it's important to, you know, look at, look at those people around you who've got experience that you can draw from. I think it's, you know, if there's a degree of mentorship available to you, I think that's hugely important. It might be your investors. It might be you have some non-executive directors. It might be somebody that's you know not necessarily directly involved in the business. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't you know you can't benefit from the from their wisdom, right? From their experience, you know, we we don't need to uh, repeat the mistakes of ourselves or or other people. Probably will, um, but if we can avoid it, that that can be quite useful. And for me, I think I I did have some good uh, sage advice. Um, from from some people I respect very well, and um, our, our investors included, who've done this before and uh, have that knowledge that they can impart upon you in terms of when when you step away. But also, I think there comes a point in time where you've just got to trust that you've got the right people in front of you, you've brought the right people in the business, or you've inherited them, whatever the case may be. And this is the more difficult bit. You've got to expect, you've got to understand and accept that things will go wrong, that the people who work with you have to experience those things going wrong and being part of the solution that addresses that in order for them to grow and move forward as well. I actually don't think it's any more complex than that because it's actually, it's an emotional decision. It's not, because logically, you know, anyway, it, it's it's the emotional side of it that says, okay, am I am I, am I ready to let go? The, the, the other point to make here is that it's incredibly dangerous if you don't, because ultimately, a founder that can be, you know, the, the the superstar of a business at one point in time, solving problems left, right, and center, has that single vision. Could be months or a year later, but suddenly in the bottleneck that prevents that business growing and uh, and actually achieving the goals that that are, are are hugely important. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers the question or not, but yeah, for me, I think honestly, because it's more of an emo, because you know, you should if you don't logically know, it's a bigger problem. But, but but when you identify that you are no longer, your actions are no longer of a net benefit in the business because you're involved in too much, it, it for me it's been a case of when when you know con- controlling that urge within you to uh, to step into decisions and, and processes that you that you shouldn't.
I think that was that's the perfect answer, right? And I think what you touched upon quite early on was there's more than one path to success, right? And it's not always this path A. There could be multiple paths to end up in different levels of success as well. Like success shouldn't just be defined as this. There are multiple ways of defining it. And I think that's probably true for TPL from what you were saying, right? You The company was set up early doors. It had a vision and a journey and then got acquired and now has a new vision and journey. And and maybe you can kind of touch upon your current vision and journey and, and where you play in the, in the fintech payments ecosystem. And because you talked a bit earlier about, you know, you do solution design and discovery for customers and you support young founders or, or young startups um, in terms of launching their products. And maybe you can just touch upon briefly what TPL's role is, is in, in the market. Yes, so I think it's it's changed and it's evolved a little bit. So I, you started me, you know, when you, when you introduced it, it introduced me today. I think the you, the the description you gave of what Transact Payments does was was kind of perfect, right? In, in terms of we enable for the most part, or historically have enabled for the most part, uh, unregulated fintechs to provide card and electronic money services to, to their end users. Kind of a well trodden path for for being sponsorship. It works very well for for a number of reasons. I think we that's changed a little bit or evolved over the past few years is we, we're seeing more and more, um, for as well as supporting those early stage fintechs and regulated businesses, we are we're now providing services to you know a significant amount of and in fact the proportion is almost equal right now of, of regulated fintechs that we're servicing. So it, it could be that you are you know, a simple example might be you might be a current account provider. A current account really requires a debit card. You might not want to provide a debit be- debit card because you, you don't necessarily do with the complexity around schemes and the rules and settlement and, and all that and all that good stuff that we you know is is bread and butter for us. But for a you know a, a credit institution or a bank it might not be your day to day, and it just might not make more sense to it might make more sense to, to outsource that to, to somebody like this. And I think that you know our if we're going to achieve our goal, and, and our goal is is very much to be the best in sponsoring UK and Europe, we have got to be able to solve as many of those problems as possible for many different for, for, for many different institutions of different shapes, sizes, and 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 type. And I think that we we're starting to see that in you know our customer profile today is, is arguably a little bit different. We're still very very keen. We love supporting the fintechs. It's a bread and butter, but it's a, it's a lifeblood of our industry really. But we you know we love providing payment solution to maybe. Uh, as part of an embedded finance play, it could be a gig economy um, business that has a has a challenge with paying its contractors, or it could be have a problem with paying. Maybe you're a food delivery app and you want to pay restaurateurs more quickly than can when you currently can. We can step in and we can help you solve that problem and hopefully give you something to differentiate your service to value competitors to those merchants that, that, that you're dealing with. So I think that it's to, to to achieve our goal, we've got to be able to identify those areas within which we can provide a solution that can actually not just help enable fintech business that maybe wants to be a neobank or you know, the, the kind of the tra- tra- traditional method I mentioned, we're also looking at other industries that could benefit, but have a payment need which we could which we could solve and ultimately take a headache away from what, what is otherwise a, you know, a, a very successful or, or rapidly growing business. And, and we've done quite a bit of that of late with online marketplaces and so on. And, you know, we, we like that model. Uh, in terms of how you do that, well, one of the, the challenges is, of course, as you move into new, these new sectors, your skill set and your experience has to change. 
And I think that's where you know, we we ensure that we've we spend a lot of time learning from each and every implementation that we conduct every product that we bring on. I think this, my favorite part of the of the business actually is sitting down and and working out how to solve a problem with with, with that program manager at fintech. It's super fun. <laughs> it's it's like being involved in. 40, 50 businesses, however many businesses you might be servicing at that point in time, be it directly or indirectly. And I, yeah, I think that, you know, if you, ins- again, it comes back to your earlier point, really. It's not, I'm playing a fairly minor role in that now. I've got a team of people who are involved in, in that problem solving exercise. And each one of those is taking the experience they gain from each exercise and kind of cross fertilizing the business with that experience and that knowledge as well, which hopefully need. The benefit of it then compounds, and it means we become ever more experienced, ever, ever, ever more informed, and that should, I, I believe, take us at least part in a way to to achieving that goal that I mentioned earlier. Thank you, and you, you touched upon a really interesting point there. In that, not only are unregulated new fintech startups coming to work with you, but also regulated institutions are looking at you know using your expertise to launch a card program and. It's really interesting because a common question we get asked from new founders is like, isn't launching a card program easy? Or why is it so hard to launch a card program? And it's it's quite a nuanced answer to try and give. Having launched a card program previously, I have some knowledge. But when if you were to speak to a founder and they were like, why is it hard to launch a card program? What would you say to them? How would you explain the complexities of it? It's a really good question, and I think that the bin sponsorship industry as a whole does a really poor job articulating why it's a value, why it's more than just a, a, a line in your costs. <laughs> um, because let, you know, let's let's be honest to ourselves when you're when you're putting a program together and you, you find your processing partner, KYC provider, and so on and so forth. You get to a point where maybe if it's just a provision of a, a payment instrument, it kind of looks like the easy part. Uh, and I think it's only when fintechs get into that actual implementation exercise and they start to see the complexity required to comply not just with regulation but with scheme rules, and then they see how um, that's an ongoing burden for them and for the life of their business. It, it doesn't stop when you go live. Um, quite rightly, the schemes will be continually pushing up mandates that you have to comply with to make sure that that program operates safely and effectively and doesn't harm consumers and um, which you know as a bin sponsor we should absolutely be supportive of that approach and, and we are uh, but and that's a, a real continual like ongoing overhead from a resource perspective and that's not even factoring in then your your bau activity which is you know, settling particularly you start bringing multi-currency issues fees are complex it can quickly and my, my view is and, and it's been you see some of the really informed customers that have come to us and they've already undertaken this exercise there's definitely a point in time if you're a fintech and say you're starting a neo bank or a cross-border fx travel product there's definitely a point in time where it will make sense for you to become a principal member of a card scheme and, a, and, and an issuer in your life there is absolutely no challenge to that for, for me or, or, or anyone where I think is sensible in the, in, in the industry. But to get there requires quite a lot of cardholders, quite a lot of settlement activity to make it cost-effective. But it's, but it's about more than that. I think that there's a journey that you can go on as a fintech, fintech working with a bin sponsor that will 
really act as an incubator of sorts for you. We'll work really closely with you to make sure that they are, I, I guess, I'm not sure it's the correct term, but almost educating you to the way in, in which that ecosystem works and what those obligations are going to look like and, and what it's going to take to service those obligations and meet them in an effective way going forward. And I think for a good bin sponsor, um, should be seen as more than just the, the company that switches on your card issuance and, and lets you run for the first two, three years of your business. It really should play that all, almost consultative role. It enables you to continually evolve your product or work with you to find ways to make things work. That could be in the term, in, in, in the sense of product development. It could be in a sense of the internationalization of your product, which is also something that can be challenging, even within the EU. And, you know, the idea that we have this harmonized regime where everything works the same way in France as it does in Germany, as, as you know, Mark, isn't true. <laughs> there are nuances between the, uh, the ways in which every member state is, has gone and actually interpreted that legislation. Then you've got scheme differences on top of that. So it's, it's not simple. So I've seen a real value of a, of a good quality bin sponsor. Every single one of them should be able to get you live in a reasonable amount of time, keep you compliant with the rules, and allow you to sell the scheme every day. That, that bit's easy. I think the real quality um, bin sponsors will actually be able to play in that consultative advisory role as well. And that actually will play a key role in enabling you to develop you, your staff, your team, to get to a point where if you do decide at some point in the future, it makes sense to go it on your own. You're capable of doing that. But if you decide not to, because you see the value in continuing that relationship, will actually be, I, I hope, a valid point of information or reference to your development plans and your strategic plans in, in terms of how you continue to to, to roll up, to roll your, your, your business out. I'm actually going to challenge you on one thing you just said right at the end. You said a bin sponsor enabling you to be compliant with local regulation, scheme regulation, and getting you live in a timely manner is easy. I think that's what is not easy and what, that's what founders think is easy to do that but that's actually the challenge if you try and do it yourself right and that's where all the complexities come in in launching a card program is in those three instances or those three verticals right and then everyone just assumes it's easy it really can't be that hard to launch a card program everyone does it but and when you say oh that's easy that's because you have 5 10 15 years of experience in doing it but for someone new to the market there's a hundred, two hundred little nuances or little decisions to make on how to set up the card program and chip profiles and velocity limits and spend like spending rules and transaction types and and that's where it can just become uh, a minefield of information to wade through and decisions to make and that's probably where, I, in my opinion, your value as a bin sponsorship industry comes in. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. And that uh, you know, I, I'm I'm maybe being a little bit, um, I guess, flippant there. Uh, I guess what I'm what I'm really trying to say is that a quality bin sponsor should be that that should be the fundamental deliverable. That should be represented in in a way that they guide you to your decision of who you choose and, and, and so on. Unfortunately, it's not always the case, as well as we know, um, because because of the complexity that exists. But I think the value add is it shouldn't stop at go life. It, it, it should it should be something that is a um, post go live as you evolve up that product set. You, you mentioned some good examples uh, there. We all know that the world moves on so quickly that you know a product for you is perfect for the market this year. In two years' time, is is going to is going to need evolution. If and, and two years' time is probably quite a long time in the future, probably much sooner than that. Um, and I think that having a partner that um, 
understands that and is you know not going to consider the job being done at the point you go live is is is, is maybe a a better way of articulating what I was trying to say because I'm also quite concerned that uh, the guys who actually do this for uh, alongside me in the office will have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> My job is not easy. <laughs> yeah. So, Aaron, you know, you touched upon the card schemes. And one question I get asked a lot, and I think one question you and the team will get asked a lot is, well, how do I choose which card scheme to work with? Who's the better one, Mastercard or Visa? And it's a very open and difficult question to answer, I feel. And I wonder how, you know, in your experience, how you would answer that question. Yeah, it, it is a good question, and, and, and but also difficult, as you've, uh, as, as you've, as you've said there, Mark. I think that... I wouldn't say that there is a better scheme. I think what there are are differences that exist between the approaches of each, each scheme that may benefit what your you know, benefit you more one more than the other, depending on the the program concept that you're looking for. I think the, the big dif- differentiator for me, putting you know any sort of commercial factors aside, which which may or may not exist between the scheme and and, and the fintech. Uh, I would, if I was building my card program today, I would be. What with the bin sponsor, the process of anybody in that value in, in that supply chain, I would be looking for partners who have experience in it, as in it, if if not exactly what I do, because maybe I've got a USP that, that means I'm fairly individual, but certainly experience in as close to what I'm intended to do as possible. So, mm-hmm. if I was to you know, launch a, a, a new product construct or product construct that is fairly recent, I would be looking toward a scheme that also has some experience in that. Why why do I say that? Well, it's going to have an influence on how quickly your program is approved, potentially. It, it could easily mean that some of the individuals working on your implementation project, the scheme could actually have direct experience in what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, so I think that yeah, much like any other supplier, and I think you know it's important to, to sometimes remember that's what, that's what they're doing for you at that point in time, is becoming a key supplier. I mean, it's important to make sure that they have... Uh, some experience in the particular concept that you're trying to um, trying to implement yourself. Other than that, I mean, it's it, it it's a very individual choice. Both schemes are there's a reason they are they are dominant worldwide. They 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 know how to get the job done. Uh, but I would certainly be inclined to be trying to identify whether one option or the other has more direct experience in what it is you're seeking to achieve. No, that makes sense. And, and that's generally the, the approach I think most people tend to go down. It's also maybe who you have the better chemistry with, right? Because partnerships, relationships generally come down, in my opinion, to chemistry and um, how you think you'll work together with someone. Oh, 100%. And I think that, that that's very interesting point, isn't it? Because, of course, um, people change, teams change, and so on. And, but no, if, if you've got a I think with any supplier, if you've got a relationship where there's absolute trust there and they get you, <laughs> which isn't always the case in any, you know, with, with, with a supplier, they've got to, if you've got someone in particular who really believes in what it is you're trying to achieve, that's worth his waiting goals. So yeah, if you've got a real support somewhere, uh, yeah, it, it's worth taking full advantage of that. Yeah, for sure. You also touched upon an interesting bit there about some schemes maybe support specific models and stuff. In your experience um, over the last few years as CEO of uh, Transact and, and previously in your other role as CEO of Malta, what do you think makes a successful card program? 
what have you what traits have you identified in the company or the founders of those successful programs that make them successful let's start with what doesn't <laughs> so um even bother yeah um so i think a common mistake that we see and this doesn't just apply to car programs as it? it applies to businesses generally people try to solve a problem that doesn't exist uh is is more common <laughs> perhaps we'd realize um, but even when it is a problem to be solved, I feel that sometimes there's a desire to over-engineer a product at the expense of getting live and getting traction and, and, and getting actual customer acquisition up and running more quickly. I think that where we've seen our customers be more successful is where they've, in, they've really embraced a continuous improvement regime. So they've taken a view, let's get live, let's, let's start to, let's, let's market test this because you know, you can, and particularly with a smaller business, you're not using focus groups. Your your ability to to dip into market research is it's kind of sometimes limited because of the expense and, and the resource around that. So you are going on instinct in terms of what you believe the market wants. I, I'm a firm believer, test that as quickly as you possibly can by getting live. And also, you've not at that point in time spent too much money and too much resource on particular product as, aspects of your product that actually might not be what might, you might care about them. Um, but the the customers that you're seeking to speak to might not, uh, and and we we have seen that quite a lot. It's it's a common theme in businesses that then you know potentially struggle to struggle to hit the customer numbers that they need to to be commercially viable. I'd make it is it's harder in the in say UK and Europe, but it's somewhere like the US is particularly consumer product based entirely on interchange is difficult. Ordinarily, the unit costs just don't work until you hit an enormous scale. And I think that given them, when we take a look at the market today, I don't believe that the funding is there for the vast majority of businesses that have to meet that kind of scale before they're able to be self-sufficient. I think the days of VCs throwing tens, if not hundreds of millions at a business based on customer numbers are long gone. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm supportive of that. I, I don't believe that's the way that um, our economy should operate. I think that there should be a, a, a far greater emphasis on profitability. I, I think we're starting to see that now. So, yeah, it would be, I guess, in a nutshell, identify the problem you're solving, keep it simple, design a solution to that, don't, don't over-engineer it, and you know, opt for the continuous uh, improvement um, strategy when you're in market because you're going to be... If you if you take that more simplistic approach or simple approach to get in the market, you're going to be you're going to be much more successful in our experience in evolving your product once it's live and, and trying to design the perfect product that you know in our experience doesn't exist before you've actually allowed any customers to get their hand on it. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And, and one thing you touched upon was actually going to be my next question: is it's not really feasible to survive on the consumer interchange because it is so low in UK and Europe. How do you, have you seen others monetize a card program in a better way than just relying on interchange? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of different routes where, where it's yeah. ultimately it's about value adds and, and what you can charge for, isn't it? Um, to the end user, are you, are you offering a product and the people are willing to pay a subscription fee for, um, or are you offering a, a value add service, you know, a common one would be, you know, a trend we've seen a lot of at the moment is a lot of products aimed at sort of transit workers who need to send fund some. And a card can be a great way of doing that, uh, or a card-related program can. 
those um, consumers, when they take a look at your product, it is some it is an opportunity to charge them fees for some of those for, for part of that service offering. But it's still going to allow you to undercut the money remittance players that might be active in that market as well. So you're, you're still you're still delivering a commercially attractive product to a consumer, but you also are able to sort of start start to charge for some of those services that aren't maybe just strict card usage. Because I, I, I think you're right, Amal. It, it's very different. I mean, today, if you are just looking at sort of those local territories that we're, that we're referring to, it's very difficult to identify why you would be successful trying to build a model purely on interchange because any additional services you are offered are going to cost you. So you're going to have to have a product for people with a foreign top. Be that premier offering. There's lots of options, and I've seen... I've seen it done very successfully by some of our customers and, and, and of course, other programs in the market as well that aren't, aren't related to transact. I, I do worry for any business that is trying to launch um, where interchanges its sole source of revenue. No, I agree. Commercialization of fintech products these days is getting harder and harder. And it's, it's just one of the challenges, right? Currently existing in the market, you touched upon funding is another one. And you're probably right, long gone other days of, tens and hundreds of million being given out to straight to consumer programs. Uh, probably a third challenge, which we kind of briefly touched upon was kind of compliance and how it's becoming more and more challenging for fintech. I wonder what are your thoughts on the current kind of compliance and regulatory challenges for fintechs? What do you think are the key ones they should be considering and, uh, and what, what actions should they be taking to kind of mitigate any risks they have? Okay, so this is for a fintech that we're seeking to enter the market rather than the, the regulated businesses like ours. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think we've already witnessed a shift in the way that fintechs are viewing compliance. It's not that long ago that I suspect many fintechs would have been, you know, in some instances, <laughs> keen to find partners that would have been, dare I say, light touch. Uh, I think regulation is understandably seen by some unregulated businesses as a bit of a frustration and sometimes a barrier to innovation or to growth. But I'm what, what we, and this is our personal experience as a business, we, we've seen a real change in the syntax we're coming through now. They're much more compliance focused. I think that they've taken a look at the market and they've, and some of them have experienced themselves what happens when sticking to bin sponsorship. You know, if I've got let's say 50, 100 life programmanders, wherever it could be at any point in, in time. It only takes a problem with one program to really impact the business of all other program managers. I think most program managers acknowledge that now and are seeking a, a bid sponsor and, and undoubtedly ever regulated providers as well. We're not going to put them in that position. They're seeking suppliers who are taking regulation seriously, who can evidence a robust compliance history. In many instances, we're seeing really good questions come through from program managers asking us how we intend to deal with, you know, upcoming or, or, or current regulatory changes. And we love to see that in a potential pros in a prospect because that tells us from day one that they're not seeing compliance as just some overhead. They're seeing it as core to establishing and maintaining a, a successful business. So it's absolutely essential to take a look at the regulated history of those, of those suppliers. Nobody's perfect. Um, but you know, thorough due diligence, make sure that they are, if they're willing to 
dare I say, take a like touch review, it's likely that they would be willing to take a like touch of other programs, which in turn means that there will be risks posed to your business that you can't you can't mitigate. They're totally outside of your control. And you know, there's been some fairly high profile recent examples where, you know, I make a lot of fintechs have felt a lot of pain um because of actions that were, you know, undoubtedly not caused by them or issues that were not caused by them. I think you're right. I think the high profile um, announcements that have been made about certain providers in the market and the knock on impact it has had has led to a mindset shift, right? Where previously compliance was seen as oh, the thing you have to do. It's the thing preventing growth, um, all these rules and regulations in place. And what I think people are, are finally seeing it as now is a critical function of your business to ensure long-term stability. And I think it's been an important change. And although, you know, the markets had, or let's say a rough 12 to 18 months with some of the challenges from the, that we've had, it's probably made it as an, in, made us as an industry stronger. And we're more primed for that next leg of growth over the next 24, 36, 48 months. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 it keeps us all safe, doesn't it? And you know, I mean, that. You're right. There's definitely a, I like we described that as there's, there's that kind of mentality shift that it's, you know, I think pick a, pick a bin sponsor or whatever provider who is, who's going to make that investment for you. Who's, you know, if you see that, you know, they, they grow, ask for an old chart. <laughs> it, it, does your bin sponsor have a, is it heavily weighted towards risk compliance and so on? Well, that's, that's definitely not a bad sign given the nature of the services they're going to be supplying to you. And, you know, I, I, I would absolutely encourage, you know, a deep dive into the compliance capabilities before signing signing the contract. Absolutely. One other big compliance challenge, which you kind of touched upon earlier, was Brexit um, and the lack of a trade deal, the lack of passporting rights. Do you want to maybe just walk us through what you guys did as transact as a company um, in your in your planning on how Brexit may impact you? And was it easy? Was it a challenge? Were there scary moments at times how did you guys find that kind of compliance challenge uh so it, it, it definitely wasn't easy um i think it was i think it was tougher than we expected and i you know i suspect that's how a lot of issuers felt felt as well uh so you know the decision so we chose malta uh, as our as our jurisdiction chose it for a number of different reasons uh but i think was what was quite challenging for a lot of bin sponsors as Brexit uh, was fast approaching, is that if you think, if you cast your mind back to sort of pre-2020, with the exception of Gibraltar in the UK, I can't really think of too many bin sponsors, um, too many locations that actually licensed bin sponsors. And what that meant, of course, was that just with any jurisdiction you went to, your business model was new. Uh, and something that that regulator hadn't seen before or certainly hadn't licensed themselves before. And I think that caused quite a lot of challenges for the industry. I think we saw a number of high-profile switches of jurisdiction with different issuers. You know, they might have started in in Ireland and moved to the Netherlands or Netherlands and moved to Lithuania, or, or, you know, whatever the changes were. And they're big, they're big, costly decisions to suddenly abort a licensing application and, and start somewhere else, particularly when there's a ticking clock, you know, Although we were, you know, most of us were crossing our fingers and, and hoping for a trade deal, you know, we all had to be ready for that cliff edge. We got the extension, of course, um, but ultimately, 
there came a point where it was quite clear to most of us that end of January 2020 was it. Uh, and if you weren't um, fully licensed and, and had your go live approvals from your from the new regulator, you know, for us, that would have meant switching off about 65% of our card issuance for our program managers. I think it would, would have been naive for any issuer to have thought that having to switch off business in Europe wouldn't have impacted this UK business as well. Because I think you've got to assume that there's going to be a certain degree of, of, uh, of attrition to your customer base when that happens. It, 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 was, a, it was an interesting time. I, I mentioned I, I moved across to Malta to, uh, to take a lead on it. I'll be honest, I expected it to, to be slightly easier than it was. Um, as I moved over, we were at the point where we were, we, we were just weeks away, we were told, from the licensing principle. And it took an awful lot longer than that to get it, which meant, you know, we, we had to develop the team quite quickly, which we did. Uh, we were very lucky there. We managed to bring in some, some high caliber individuals. Let's be honest, taking a leap of faith with you at that point in time because you don't have a license. And uh, there's a possibility you won't receive it. So yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a certain challenge in recruitment there. But we, we got over the line um, just before the deadline, which was, which was really great news. You know, our, our customers were very patient and very supportive of us. And they, they trusted us um, to get the deal done, which was, was hugely important. What that meant is you know, on the 1st of February or whatever day it was now, we were able to affect the immediate migration of our customers with no outages of services or, or no no issues with our contracts or T's and C's or anything like that that impacted our our performance rate. Not everybody was in the same position. And yeah, we, we actually um, had a uh, did some work uh, for one or two issuers helping support them for a transition period as well, um, where we felt it was appropriate to do so, your know, bearing my competition and, and, and so on. So it was a yeah, really interesting time. But it you know, the challenges continue because you go from a, an organization with one set of decision makers to having two sets of decision makers. And if you take the, the, a FinTech program manager that wants to issue in the UK and Europe, which many of them do, they have two sets of approval committee to go through when they want to launch a pro- the, 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 the program. Suddenly they are impacted by what might be two different views of the regulators in terms of how, I don't know, KYC must be conducted. And you know, so we a, a challenge with the business sort of had to... I guess embrace really was being able to mitigate any impact of that on that fintech to make it easy for them to understand what the rules would be, whilst of course maintaining that each individual license is is fulfilling its obligations to its regulator. So we've been, I, I mean, I won't say it's lucky because it was part of the decision making process for choosing Malta, but in, in a lot of instances, the Malta, Maltese position is very similar to the Gibraltar position in terms of how. Uh, uh, legislation is 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 interpreted, and and that's important. I think that if you're a fintech that's being serviced by somebody that might be licensed in the UK and then somewhere else in Europe, where there isn't that alignment between the two sets of regulators, you know, the real operational impact on the event is quite heavy because suddenly you might have to have two completely separate onboarding journeys for your cardholders. Every fintech out there wants cardholders to be onboarded as seamlessly and as friction, frictionlessly as possible. We all know that frictionless onboarding just doesn't really exist. But having two sets of onboarding journey to manage, which could be both subject to change, that's a problem. And is you know, again, coming back to one of your earlier questions, that's the kind of uh, assessment you need to be conducting if you're going to be multi-jurisdictional of the of the providers who are going to support you. You know, are you going to have to play by a completely different set of rules in the UK to what you're going to have to 
in, in, in certain European jurisdictions. That's the kind of, I guess, analysis that really, really does need to be conducted. But yeah, it was a, come back to your, I guess, at the, the top of my response. It was, yeah, it was a frustrating and it was a, a, a worrying time. There was a real concern that we might not have got there in time. We get, we, we always felt confident we'd get the license and worked very closely with the regulator to, to make sure that was the case. But as we start, I think it was the full go live approval was Christmas Eve. I mean, just, just before we broke off. So I actually remember I flown back to Gibraltar at Christmas, sat at the Gibraltar office having that, um, having that phone call when they said, okay, you're now good to go live was, was, was a pretty decent Christmas present. I'll be honest with you. I bet, I bet a little bit of, uh, squeaky bum time to coin a popular phrase. Christmas lunch was a lot more enjoyable, definitely, um, safe in that knowledge. And, uh, yeah, we, I, I may, may have celebrated on, on Christmas Eve as well. Good. Good to hear. So we obviously talked today about what makes a successful card program. Some questions we both get asked from founders of how to launch a program. Why is it difficult? You know, what decisions should they make early on? Um, some of the challenges they face in terms of the industry and what you hope to see moving forward and maybe areas where people aren't looking at building products enough. Um, are there any in particular that you'd, you think deserve more attention than they've had so far? It's a very good question. I, I, I think that I'm still seeing a little bit less. I mean, we're starting to see a bit more sort of ethical using the term very loosely before I get told off, sort of ethical banking products and services coming through. So products that are not only seeking to facilitate access to the financial system for those people and, and, and businesses, by the way, that have not really been serviced in the way that we need to. A lot of businesses are combining that with you know, the, kind of the wider ESG approach. So you know, carbon neutrality and so on. Um, I think that for me, I'd like to see a little bit more more done there. I believe there's still there's still a lot of, of market left to be serviced, but also not from the fintech perspective, but I think from a kind of a supplier perspective, there's 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 work that can be done to make it easier to bring those products to market. You know, if we look at certain rules that exist around using kind of biodegradable plastic, if we're really going to encourage an ESG re- regime. You probably shouldn't have to get a waiver for that, you know. That's that's it. That's the kind of um, kind of decision I'm or, or position I'm referring to there. I think I'd like I'd like to see more products created to to service kind of those those portions of society that perhaps aren't quite there. Um, that's the individuals, but I mentioned businesses as well. You know, I mean, access to financial services for SMEs is is still woefully underserved, and you know, I'd like to see more products and services brought to market, but you know, that can only be achieved if other players in the ecosystem are, are, are willing to collaborate on that. And yeah, access to banking for corporate is something that is you know, spoken about quite a lot in fintech, and I think quite rightly so. If, if I take a look at the problems ever fintechs or, or being sponsored side of an opening bank have when trying to open and, and maintain market accounts, um, it to me is kind of, it's one of the biggest challenges that prevent us being able to service a broader market of products and services uh, because we might wish to support them. Our regulators might wish to support them. The card schemes might wish to support them. Um, but ultimately, if our underlying banks are not on board, we're not going to be able to um, 
to, to service that particular business model. I think that's something that I'd like there to be even more discussion on, um, but quite how we how we turn the tide on that, I'm not sure. Um, you know, there's, there are focus, you know, there's lobbying efforts seem to be going on quite consistently, but I'm not sure that we're making the progress that we, we should do. Although, of course, there are some new banks that have entered the market the last few years that are more geared towards supporting the fintech sector, which in turn, I think, will you know, enable fintechs to open up and service even more uh, currently under service groups. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, even in just the last few weeks, like I've had numerous clients or prospects come to us and be like, we can't open a corporate account to pay our bills. Can you recommend anyone to help us? And it it's crazy that we're in what 2023 and fintech's not a new industry, right? It's been around for quite a few years now. And the fact that new fintechs are struggling to get bank accounts it's crazy in my opinion and, and it's a real challenge and it's an opportunity i guess for someone to take and as you've said there are people setting up to solve the opportunity but yeah there's still a long way to go and then on the personal space uh we you were kind of mentioning this concept of banking beyond the bank i feel it's been around for so long right you know i, I probably 2017 is 2016 is probably the first time i heard those words and the, the progress I think we've made in the last seven or eight years isn't probably where we should be by now. And I think, and I look at it and I'm like, you know, you talked about this a few minutes ago about user journeys for onboarding. And like, there's just the regulation currently in place requires like an ID document, an address verification document, and sometimes, you know, maybe even income slips and stuff like that to get a, a bank account. And it's, Sometimes those who are under bank don't have all of these evidentiary documents that they're able to provide. So it's how can regulation keep up with reality or like the the the, the situation on the ground? And I think there's a gap there, right? Because fintechs, they need to remain compliant, but then sometimes the compliance regulations prevent the products being built for those who need it the most. And, and I guess what's the answer? If you know the answer, if you can tell us the answer, uh, I've got a view. I'm not sure if that's that counts, but no, I, I, I think you made a couple of good points. But you know, I think that there is still a significant lag um, in terms of what regulation will allow versus what technology can achieve. You know, I think that there's there's challenges where you know I still think the idea that. Any organization thinks they can take a look at utility bill as a valid form of identifying anybody, albeit in conjunction with other information documentation, is is a bit laughable in, in 2023. I think there are far, far more suitable ways of, of of validating you're dealing with who you want or believe you are dealing with. I mean, it, for me, two, there's kind of two big events where I think highlight quite how much further we have to go. The first would be COVID. There were many, many places... And an individual in, in UK and Europe and, and individuals who were adversely impacted because for the first time in their lives, they couldn't knit down to a counter somewhere and extract cash, right? Um, there are certain individuals there who would not have a passport, maybe, would have other challenges of passing the KYC to have onboarded with uh, another digital payment method. Uh, and I think that there are, you know, they, I, I would, you know, I firmly believe that there would have been more effective ways to service those people and not put them in harm's way because 
COVID and, and, and staying at home was difficult for many, many reasons, but one of those reasons shouldn't have been to continue to, you know, pay your bills or, or order food from a supermarket. And you know, we shouldn't have been placing barriers in people's ways. You know, there are examples where, you know, certain, certain places in Europe even still pay benefits with cash. And thankfully, uh, some fintechs, and, and we did this ourselves, stepped in and provided a KYC, uh, you know, a, a basically a, a prepaid card product to enable them to, to, to at least be able to spend the benefits or the pension that they were entitled to. Uh, and a second kind of big, it, it, I guess, ongoing example is is what's going on in Ukraine, right? You've, you've had a huge amount of people who've been um, sort of forced out in their homes, forced across borders um, in, into other, other parts of Europe. These people didn't come with passports and utility bills. And whilst it is led, you know, while certain governments have reacted and have found ways to provide a, alongside fintech to provide a product to service that particular market, they've still got very little chance of, or, or it's still, or I feel safe, or fairly certain in saying they're still going to find it even more difficult than the average guy on the street to go and open a bank account, right? Or, or to go and get a mortgage or the credit card, whatever it could be. And I think that, you know, I'd like to think that despite the fact those those individuals haven't crossed the borders with with paperwork, most of them would have had a mobile phone, most of them would have had other forms of, or, or would have had the, but subway biometric data is undoubtedly stored that could have been utilized. So I'd, I'd like to see that, and I think there's a, there's a definite argument that there needs to be a different, rec, technology can do, but regulation needs to be more open to the fact that there is you know, a safe and secure way of storing your identity online. Um, or which will, you know, ease some of the burden that is is felt by institutions and individuals alike um, when trying to open accounts. And the institutions I reference include the financial institutions themselves as well, because I'm pretty sure if there's a safe way to do it that your regulators happy with, most institutions would like to move toward a more more appropriate means of identity validation for 2023 than a, than a passport and a utility bill. And do you think that happens from a bottom-up approach or a top-down approach? Who should be leading this push? Well, I think that you, you see, obviously, in the institutions, the sort of organizations that have built the technology are, are, are shouting loudly about it. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing support from the likes of the card schemes, you know, some of the innovation centers they have, um, you know, really releasing some, some, good, um, some good products and services there that can be helped. But honestly, I think it needs to be top down from government, I think there needs to be a, a realization that the world has changed a little bit and there are some very, very good forms of technology that could, you know, because no one's talking here about reducing the efficacy of these checks, right? We're just saying, let's do it in a different way <laughs> and let's do it in a way that is, is more in keeping with the way that we want, we, we, we live our lives today. Um, you know, I think that mobile digital verification it's got to be the way forward. Um, there are absolutely, I mean, how many how many of us are storing biometric, financial, numerous forms of personal information online in one form or another? There's got to be a way of consolidating that and and and, and reusing it so that we are, I, I guess, not blocking up the ecosystem. I agree. There are already some initiatives in some countries across Europe. I think there are some in the Nordics where. They have that kind of digital identity which they can use to open accounts. I think, yeah, I think it needs to become more widespread. Does there need to need to be a European initiative? Right, that that's a question that's I imagine being asked in corridors, up and down government offices, and and with all the 
um, lobbying that's being done. But it's an interesting space. I think you're right. Like governments are slow to react, and I guess that's maybe out of fear of getting it wrong and opening up the potential risk of money laundering and identity theft. And there's all these risks they to consider. But I think the world is changing, and the regulations and you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago or, or longer, maybe not as appropriate these days as maybe they once were. And I think the, the, the key is the regulation even makes provision for this. I mean, you, you mentioned, all, I mean, the Sweden's a great system, isn't it? The bank identifier, I forget the official term for it, apologies, but works really well. And um, that doesn't in any way, okay, you've still got to acquire that, like, that, that, um, that, that number, but yeah, you, I'd like to think that um, a European level or certainly a national level, governments and, and and various sort of civil service groups are taking a look at what works and trying to find ways to, um, I guess, leverage existing technology to, to release some of the burden on, uh, on, on again, both the, both the individuals but also the institutions as well. So, Aaron, thank you so much for kind of joining the Finterview podcast today. I think we've touched upon some really interesting topics and I think there's lots of helpful tidbits of advice and knowledge and nuance that um, our listeners may learn. The last question I want to ask you, and it's why I ask all of my guests, I know you currently run a business in its maturity stage and transact um, as CEO. However, if you were to become a founder from scratch in the future, what business would you set up and why? It's a good question, isn't it? Firstly, I mean, credit to um, to anybody that takes that step. <laughs> it's it, it's a commitment of many, many years of hard work, isn't it? For for potentially, certainly initially, at least not a lot of reward, and it's uh, enormously challenging. And I think it's you know, I, I really do admire um, pe- people who've done that, be it successful or not, because it, it takes uh, it, it takes an awful lot of courage. Um, where I see the gap in the market, and, and I think that I always, I always think that if you're going to start a business, either you're developing something completely new or even better, you're seeing something that works maybe in a different territory and doing something similar somewhere else where there's still a need for it. I, I believe that there's still a huge amount of opportunity um, to support cross-border payments, particularly you know, there's a lot of focus with the likes of, uh, and, and people are wise to it exceptionally well, right? On, I know they do corporate business as well, but um, I mean, if I look at business payments, um, there are there are payment corridors in the world which are still terribly underserved, but which, you know, have to accommodate, in some instances, billions worth of payments going through them. So for me, if I can see a big opportunity and you only need to be, I guess winning a little bit of the business that, that runs through that, that's that's really the criteria I would be looking at. So it would be definitely in the in the in the world of facilitating payments in currently underserved payment corridors for corporate businesses because there's a lot of them. And although there's some great money remittance businesses across the world, I mentioned Wise County Cloud a fantastic job, for example. Um, I still think that there's a lot of really underserved markets where you can take what's been done really well already. Um, and you can carve yourself a niche. That would be uh, that would be my my preference if pushed. And I imagine that's from your experience in running a business, having some of these pain points, right? So it's what you went to earlier. You it's not you're making a problem up. You're experiencing a problem day to day, and you just want someone to solve that for you and, and maybe 
post transact that that may be your future you know <laughs> who knows who knows so still still an awful lot left to do at, at transact yeah exactly amazing thank you so much Aaron.